Welcome, guests who are with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here. We have a guest with us, Don Whitney, who is a professor of biblical spirituality at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the associate dean of the School of Theology there. And so, with no further ado, would you join me and give a Brook Hills warm welcome to our brother Don Whitney as he comes to bring the word. Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Matt, for those kind words. You've been so hospitable to me all weekend, as has everyone on uh, the team and everyone that I've been connected with, involved with throughout this whole process from the email correspondence that began it to uh, right down to lunch after this and ride to the airport with uh, Pastor Matt and Paula. Everyone's just been so hospitable and I would have expected nothing less from a church of um, your reputation and uh, precede you and what an honor it's been for me to be here. Uh, my boss has preceded me a few years ago, Dr. Al Moeller, and I know he would want, to, want me to send greetings uh, to you as well. But what a privilege it's been uh, to be here. You've re- listened so well, you've responded so well, and been so encouraging. So it, what, a, what a great experience this has been for me. And now may the Lord use me to be a blessing to you, is, is my prayer now. There's a wonderful promise here in this passage, Romans 8. Verse 31, just a couple of sentences. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know if God is for you or not? What if you want to get married but nothing ever works out? Does that mean God is against you? What if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? But then what if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you're unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? What if you have many wonderful children? They all turn out well. Does that mean God is for you? What if you can't get a job? Does that mean God is against you? What if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? But then what if you lose that job? Does that mean God is against you? What if you always have money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? What if you hate the place where you live? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you live in your dream house? Does that mean God is for you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things I've just mentioned are necessarily any indication one way or the other. For all the good things I have mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've mentioned have happened to those God is for. So ultimately, how do we know whether God is for us or whether God is against us? Well, ultimately, we know that God is for us because of what he says he has done for us, what he says in the Bible that he has done for us. In other words, we rely upon whether or not God is for us based on the unchanging Word of God, not the changes in our circumstances. Now, our text this morning is just two simple sentences. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul strokes his beard there and thinks about these things. 
And as he considers these things, these things convince Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here this morning that God is for us. But as he considers these things, he then gives us the next sentence after thinking about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? But it really makes a difference in, in this case. That little word translated if at the beginning of the second sentence uh, is translated from a, a Greek word that, well, here, here's the bit of background there. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, they had several complete different words, all translated in English as the word if. And it's sort of like uh, how the native peoples of the far north, I'm told, have 16 different words translated in English as snow. All 16 of them we just translate as snow. But for them, one of them means heavy, wet snow. Another one means dry, powdery snow. They need that there. We don't need 16 different words for snow in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank the Lord, right? But in the Greek language, a very precise language, they had four, at least four different words translated in English as if. In English, we have to give some context to know what kind of if we mean. For example, a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. And we understand from the context there, well, he might go fishing or he might not go fishing. It's going to depend upon the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. That is the if used in the second sentence here. We could almost translate it as since God is for us, who can be against us? But what were the things that convinced Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here today that God is for us? Well, these things that he considers, these things, in one sense, is the whole book of Romans up to this point, but specifically, it's the things he's just been talking about. He talks about a few things and he says, what will we say to these things? And it's the things that begin the previous paragraph the things he's just written about. So look with me at the first of these things, at the beginning of the previous paragraph, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit indwelling believers, the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And Paul is saying here, one of the ways we know God is for us is because of the work of the Holy Spirit for us when we don't know what to pray or when we can't pray. You ever been there? You know you desperately need to pray, but you don't know God's will, and there's no mystical way to find out the will of God. Is, is this the way? Is that the way? We don't know the future. We don't know, but we know we ought to pray. Oh, Lord, what, what do I pray? It says the Spirit intercedes for us 
in that case? Or you ever been in the situation where you can't pray? Perhaps your heart is so heavy, like lead in your chest. All you can do is just cast yourself across the bed and face down in the bed. You just sort of groan Godwardly, oh God, oh God. In those situations, the Apostle Paul says, our God is so good and he is so great that he prays for us. The Spirit himself, the Spirit himself intercedes for us according to the will of God, as though he could pray any other way. When you are in such physical pain, or such, you're so overwhelmed emotionally, or you're perhaps even sedated, and you literally cannot put two thoughts together to pray. God does not abandon us. He's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. If they could only utter something, I would help. Come on, can you, can you not put two words together? Can you not pray something? Give me something to work with, would you? And I'll help out. But, but you got to give me some, some kind of prayer. No, Paul says, our God is so good and he is so great that when we can't pray, we've never needed prayer more, but we can't. Or we, we don't know what to pray. He does not abandon us. Indeed, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. We, all we can do, perhaps, is just groan Godwardly. We can't put conscious thought together. We can't put words together into sentences. We just groan Godwardly. The Bible says the Spirit of God encodes upon those Godward groans the very will of God. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? Don't you imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered? And Paul says, you know what, if God will do that, if in the worst times of my life, when I know I've never needed prayer more, but I can't pray, he prays for me. God is for me. And he gives another reason how we know God is for us, and it's the very famous next verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know. Now just stop right there. Have you ever, many of you would know this verse very, very well. Have you ever noticed that part of it? We know Romans 8, 28 is true, but how do we know that? We'll come back to that. And we know that, not for everyone, but for those who love God, all things work together for good, our ultimate good and God's glory. And this is not for everybody, but for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, it's been my observation <clears throat> that a lot of Christians are kind of backing away from using Romans 8, 28, especially in ministry to others. And I, I think we know why. I think many of us have seen people uh, carelessly throw Romans 8, 28, just kind of blithely at someone who's in great pain. That's not the time for Romans 8, 28. And because it's been misused or used poorly, some people want to back away from using it at all. For some, it's lack of confidence in the Word of God, that in such pain people are in, how can, 
how can a verse of Scripture really help? Well, sometimes that's all we have to cling to. But Romans 8.28 is not for people who are at the very beginning, the, the raw edge of pain, crying out to God, why did you let this happen? But after they settle down just a bit to the point where they're seriously asking questions. God, I really don't understand how you could let this happen. That's when Romans 8.28 is so precious. And we don't want to lose that. But we can know that if we love God, if we're called by God, if we're His, we can know that He works all things together in His almighty hands for our ultimate good and His glory. We know that. How do we know that? How do we know that? Remember the two previous verses. When is Romans 8, 28 most precious to us? The worst times in our lives. Well, the two previous verses have just told us that's exactly when we know the Holy Spirit's praying for us. In those times, we don't know what to pray. We can't pray. We've never needed prayer more. That's especially when the Spirit's praying for us. His prayers are always answered. So that's why we know in the worst times in our lives, the Spirit is praying for us and that God will cause all things to work together in his almighty hands where he performs a divine alchemy and even evil things turn out to be gold, our ultimate good in his glory. And notice it does say all things. And they work together in God's hands. It's not that all things are good. There are some things that are pure evil. You call them evil. Lord, how could you let pure evil happen? And God says, amen, you're right, they're pure evil. So this isn't a, a call to put on rose-colored glasses and see things differently than they really are. This isn't a call to look on the bright side of things. Some things don't have a bright side. This isn't a call to look for the silver lining in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. This is an affirmation that some things are pure evil. but that God is greater than pure evil. Have you ever seen the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's in Psalm 119, and Psalm 119, verse 91, which says, for all things, all things are your servants. Martin Luther said of the devil, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain he may do evil things, but God is control of those things. All things, but God is in control of all things. They work together in his almighty hands. So some things, yes, are pure evil, but even pure evil is not outside of the control of our sovereign God. And so that believers can say, sometimes with tears, sometimes with clenched teeth, and always through faith alone, that a day is coming in which we will not only have the pain removed, we will not only have the memories blocked of the pain of our past, but we will actually rejoice and thank God forever for the worst things that ever happened to us in this life. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you?
If we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone here this morning, I'm sure we'd hear about a number of things that would have us all in tears, a number of things for which some people ought to be in prison for, or worse. But the Apostle Paul can say, the day is coming when even the worst things that have ever happened to you will be sort of like in, in Men in Black movie, you know, that neuralizer thing where they flash that light and, you know, all the memory is gone of what, what just happened. It's not a day we can look forward to at long last. They can't hurt me anymore. And the memories will be erased. No, Paul says the day is coming. You will be aware of those things and praise God forever for the worst things that have ever happened to you. And Paul is not making light of the worst things that have ever happened to us. He could say, look, I, I live in a more evil world in many ways than you live in. I've seen brutality and evil that it's inconceivable. I lived in a world where a mom would tell her daughter, hey, the king just said you can have anything you want. I want you to have this guy's head chopped off. And the daughter brings it. Here you go, mom. Those are pretty rough times. Paul was an adult when that happened. He says, I've lived in pretty rough times. But moreover, Paul could listen to all of our stories about the worst things that have ever happened to us. And like many of you, I've lived long enough to have some pretty awful things happen to me. Deaths, griefs, physical things that if I were just a generation older, you know, I would be dead from because technology has developed points, saved my life. But I've like many of you, I've been through some pretty awful things. But Paul could look every one of us in the eye and say, I have suffered more than you. I'm not making light of what you've suffered. But Paul could say, I have suffered more than any of you. That's the man who wrote this verse. Paul could say, I have been beaten times without number. In other words, I have forgotten how many times I have been beaten for the sake of the gospel. How many times you've been beaten? for the sake of the gospel. He says 195 times the whip of the Jews has come across my back. How many times has a whip come across your back for the sake of the gospel? He said, once I was in Lystra, I was stoned and left for dead. They keep throwing stones at me, these big old rocks aiming for my head, my vital organs. And finally, I go to the ground, they keep it up. They finally give up saying, he's dead. And they walk off. How many times that happened to you? He said, I have been in dangers from rivers, dangers from the, the sea. I've been a day and a night, a whole day and a night adrift in the Mediterranean Sea because I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been danger from the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country. I've often been without food. I have been cold. I've been homeless. And he goes on and on and on. I have suffered more than any of you, he could legitimately say. But God also gave him the ultimate human experience. In this autobiographical section of 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about these things, he says, I had the ultimate human experience. Well, I'm using those words. But he said, I went to heaven. God took me to heaven. Top that. I didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in your time do for allegedly going to heaven. But Paul said, I went to heaven. 
whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I saw things. I, you know, how it all turns out, how glorious it's going to be, how glorious we're going to be. I'm sure seen, the, seen Jesus himself because Jesus had already appeared to him more than once in this world. Paul had the ultimate human experience. <clears throat> no matter what anyone ever could say, Paul could just wait around until they're finished and say, that's nothing. You know, I can top that. I'm the king of the world now, someone could say. Paul, eh, that's nothing. I can top that. I'm the richest man in the world now, Paul would say. That's nothing. I can top that. I've been to heaven. Where have you been? So Paul could say, I have suffered more than any of you, but I have seen more than any of you. I have seen something you have not seen. You have to take it by faith. I have seen it. And having experienced more pain and sorrow than you have, that is the man who writes up above in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You've suffered. I want to tell you, I've suffered more than you have, but I've seen what you haven't. And I'm telling you that the sufferings of this present time, and I've suffered more than you, this is nothing compared to what's coming. I've seen it. I've seen it. Yes, we can speak of how great, how horrible, unspeakable evil is against us in this world. But as much as it is, I want to tell you, that's like a spark compared to the sun with what I have seen. And Paul says, if God will do that, if God will take the worst things that have ever happened to me, and not just give me the hope that someday the pain will be over and the memory will be gone. He will cause us to praise God forever for the worst things that have ever happened. God is for me. You see, it's just the opposite for those who do not love God, who are not called according to His purpose. They will curse God forever for the best things that ever happened to them in this world because they will be held accountable forever for their misuse of God's great blessings, their lack of gratitude for God's great blessings, their selfish use of these things. And for all eternity, they will wish they had never received the best things they ever got in this world. Paul says, our God is so good and our God is so great. He has the ability to take the worst things that ever happened to us and translate them in his almighty hands with a divine alchemy that turns into a gold we praise God for forever and ever. Paul says, if God will do that, he is for me. But there's more. In the next couple of verses, it's often referred to as Paul's golden chain. He says, for those whom he foreknew, this is uh, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might also be, uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus would be the first among many brothers made like him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you are in Christ, we're told here, God foreknew you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew you. He knew about you. But he didn't just know about you and know decisions in advance that you were going to make. It's a more intimate word than that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you. 
He knew you. He knew everything about you, every decision you'd ever make, every sin you would ever commit. And every sin you didn't commit, but you would have if you'd had the pressures or the temptations of other people. But knowing everything about you, every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway. And then he predestined you, it says, to become conformed to the image of his son so that all those in Christ are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Not in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. Rather, we're going to be made like Jesus in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies forever and ever, made like Jesus. Now, if the passage said we were predestined to be made like angels, we would rejoice forever that God would make us creatures that astonishing. And it seems like that's actually what people believe, that humans at death morph into angels. You'll see that in the popular culture. You see cartoons about people going to heaven, and they, they're angels. They have angels' wings and all these sorts of things. And we're about to be reminded of it again in another six weeks or so as, as once again, uh, Clarence is going to try to get Jimmy Stewart's help to get his angels' wings, Right? It's a wonderful life. Remember, Clarence is some 200-plus years old, he says at one point in the movie, and, and he's still an angel, second class. And Jimmy Stewart's going to help him get his angel wings. We're not turned into angels, though we would be, as I said, astonished forever to be beings that glorious. Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John worships angels. Now, he knew better than that, didn't he? I mean, especially that he's considered to be a very old man at this point by the time the book of Revelation is revealed to him. And John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? Theologically, he knew you don't worship angels. You worship God, you worship God alone. He had probably said that, taught that. And yet, when an angel actually appeared to him in just a 15-watt bulb version of glory, He was so astonished by the beauty and glory of this angel, he fell on his face and worshiped the angel. Two times he did that, and both times the angel said, don't do that. Worship God. And as the old man, you know, got up, I'm sure he said, I I know, I know, I know, I'm I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't help myself. You're too glorious. If we knew God had predestined us to be like that, we would look forward with incredible anticipation that someday we would be that beautiful, that glorious. But folks, it's far better than that. We are predestined to be made into the likeness of his son, reflecting the glory of God forever and ever. But it gets even better. Those whom he predestined, he also called through the gospel, a call that awakens the dead Well, the passage read in Colossians this morning, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And through the gospel, he makes us alive. And he he gives the same kind of call spiritually that he gave physically to Lazarus. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man came forth. And if he hadn't said Lazarus, everyone in that tomb would have come forth. 
a call that makes Jesus irresistibly beautiful, where you want nothing more than to come to Jesus. Like the call he gave me when I was, that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I had been brought to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night since before I was born, since nine months before I was born. I'd heard the gospel countless times, but that night I heard him calling me in a way I'd never heard him call him, call me before. In a way, he, he didn't call the boys to my right and the boys to my left that night. I heard him calling me. And he had no obligation to do that. He didn't need me. I added nothing to the team. I was undeserving. In many ways, I was his enemy and running from him. But in his grace and mercy, he called me. And think of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was on his way to Jerusalem to, to imprison Christians whom he'd been persecuting. Some say he had put some to death. The last thing he was doing was coming to Christ and seeking Jesus. And yet, God called him. But it gets even better. For those whom he called, it says, these he also justified. Justified means much more than the little mnemonic device some people use with that. Justified means they say, just as if I'd never sinned. It's way better than that because it's, it's more necessary even than that. Because do you realize if you'd never sinned in your life, now one time you still couldn't go to heaven? It takes more to go to heaven than no sin. And we have infinite sin. As Jonathan Edwards famously put it, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How could he say that? Well, in one sense, because we never go a second without sin, whether we're conscious of it or not, because we never do anything perfectly. So that every word, every deed, every thought, every motive, every moment is to some degree affected by sin, whether we're intentional about it or not, conscious of it or not. Every part of us is affected by sin. So that the Bible says even our righteousnesses, a plural word about our individual acts of righteousness. When we do right here, we, we do right. And in some sense, God is pleased because that's what we ought to do. But the Bible says, compared to a holy God, even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. So that even when we do right, we don't do it perfectly. And the greatest of all commandments is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And whenever we fail to do that, we're breaking the greatest of all commandments. And so whenever we're sinning, and when is that? In one sense, every moment. Whenever we're sinning, we're not loving God with all of our heart, soul, all mind, and strength, right? Which means every moment of our life, not only are we sinning, it's a double sin because every moment we're breaking the greatest of all commandments. And that's why Edward said, my sins are infinite, upon infinite, multiplied by infinite, but if you never sinned once in your life, that just brings you back to zero, neutral. And we must have more to go to heaven than no sin. We must also have, the Bible says, perfect righteousness. 
And who has done that? Well, there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. He never once broke the law of God. Every moment of his life, he kept the law of God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, loving his neighbor as himself. And by his life, he was the only one. Jesus earned heaven. And that earned him the right, qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And he willingly offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice for lawbreakers. And God accepted that. We know because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven and seated him at the right hand of God from which he will return to judge the living and the dead. And so that on the cross, that great exchange took place. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. For us, that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero, neutral. No, it says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we believe into Christ, and that's literally what believe means. We believe into, we faith into Christ. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. When we believe into Jesus, God looks upon us in Christ, and we get ready for this we get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you healed all those people. God looks upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ, as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus got credit for my life. And you know what my life got the perfect son of God? the atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified. Paul says, if God will give me credit for the life of Jesus, God is for me. But it gets even better because it goes on to say, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified, made like Christ in every way but his divinity forever and ever and ever. And notice, would you, it's past tense right there in verse 30. In other words, in the mind of God, it's done. It's done. It's future in our experience. It's done in the mind of God. So Paul says, what shall we say to these things? What things, Paul? Well, he gives the Holy Spirit who prays for us when we don't know what to pray. We can't pray. He prays for us. He prays the very will of God, which is always answered. And he takes everything that ever happens to us, even the worst things that ever happen to us, and he doesn't just give us hope of a day when they will be neutralized. He says there will come a day when our God is so great, he will cause us to thank God forever and ever because of the blessings that come from those things. And before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I would ever commit, he loved me anyway and predestined me, me, to be not like angels, but like Jesus himself. 
And though I was his enemy and dead in trespasses and sins, he called me with the call that raises the dead, though he didn't need me. And he wasn't obligated to do that. And he gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and has ensured that I'm going to be like Christ, enjoying the glory of heaven, the glory of God forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot. But at the very least, we can say God is for us. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, that's good. And in this beautiful building on a Sunday morning, that sounds great. But you know what? If that's so, why is my life so hard? Oh, this sounds great in here, but I got to go home after this is over. And life is hard in my home. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Life is hard at work. Well, when Paul says here, if God is for us, who is against us? He doesn't say nothing or no one is against us. In fact, the Bible tells us the whole world is against us. Jesus said, if you love me, the world's going to hate you. And it's going to be like swimming upstream your whole life to follow Christ. And the current against us gets harder every day, doesn't it? The whole world is against us in one sense. And the flesh is against us, the Bible says. That part of us, even though we're justified, we're still in this world. There's a part of us that still finds sin attractive and temptation appealing. And that war within us makes life hard. And the Bible says the devil is sure against us. He was against Job, made his life harder. He's against us. That makes our life harder. But what Paul is saying here, according to the late James Montgomery Boyce, is Paul has in mind like something like an old-fashioned set of scales here. And on one side, he's putting what is against us. And they're peanuts. Who is against you? Paul, the whole world is against me. Okay, plunk, he puts that over here. Anything else? Well, yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest is always against me. All right, put that over there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil is sure against me, Paul. Well, put that there then. Plunk. And then it says the apostle Paul puts the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for us, who are they? Who is against us? The world, the flesh, the devil, who are they? So that we can say, if God is for you, he is for you forever. So don't doubt his love. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, the greatest burden you can lay on God, the greatest offense you can ever lay on him is not to believe that he loves you having given you His Holy Spirit who prays for you when you can't, causing everything in your life, even the worst things that ever happened to you, and causes you to bless God forever, even for the worst things, knowing all about you. He foreloved you anyway. He predestined you to be like Jesus. He called you when He didn't have to. He gives you credit for the life of Christ. He's made you like Christ forever and ever, and you wonder if He loves you. What could he do that's a better demonstration of that? Like winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes would be better than that? So the ultimate question here is, is God for you? Is God for you? 
If you have come to Christ and all your hope for eternity is on what he has done and nothing on what you have done, then though you may say it humbly and almost tremblingly, yes, because of Jesus, I believe God is for me. My brother or sister, take all the spiritual pleasure out of that truth that you can. Affirm, God is for me. God is for me right now. God is for me. God is for me. But if you've never come to Christ, realize that because of your rejection of his son, you have set yourself up to be God's enemy. And your life may be going well, you think, compared to others. But the day is coming when you will realize to your horror what it means that you've set yourself up as the enemy of God and that God is against you. If God is against you, there is no hope. But if this day you will come to Christ, place all your hopes on his righteousness and none upon yours, And humbly wrap your arms around him in faith. Say, oh God, receive me for Jesus' sake. He will. Regardless of what you've ever done or how many times you have done it, we can say in Jesus' name, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But others of you may have been in church not only this Sunday, but every Sunday of your life. But if your life were exposed, it would be the biggest scandal in Birmingham. He'll receive you. He receives hypocrites. He receives the self-righteous, too. And if you will come to Christ, whether or not you ever get the spouse you want or the house you want or the kids you want, or the job you want, or the income you want, or the degree you want. Come to Jesus, and you get God. And if God is for you, who can be against you?